Well, good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 18. And let's pray. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for guiding us into all truth. Thank you that you are in fact God of all time, of all history, that everything that is happening is according to your plan. There is no plan B. There's no need for a plan B. Thank you that you are, your train is going to arrive at the station on time. And I pray that you would help us to be diligent in our study of your word, that we can know it rightly so that we can obey you rightly and worship you rightly. Help us to see you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter 16, we had the third round of judgments. And these would be the bowls. These are the, the judgments that are coming out. They're the full, unmixed, unrestrained wrath of God being poured out on unrepentant men. And then out of that seventh bowl, we have an angel that approaches John and says, I'm going to show you the destruction of Babylon the Great. And we'll remember that um, if you look at the end of chapter 16, that in the midst of that seventh bowl, in verse 19, uh, Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And so chapters 17 and 18 are, outli are outlining and further describing that judgment that is specifically coming on this entity, Babylon the Great. Now in chapter 17, we saw that there is an aspect of Babylon the Great that uh, encapsulates false religion. And so uh, Babylon the Great is the poster child, so to speak, for false religion. All of those religions that replace Almighty God with something else. And that can be a God in someone else's own making. That can be the worship of oneself, as God, but which again is replacing God with a God of someone else's making. And Babylon epitomizes that, that idea of false religion. And we see that um, the beast was supporting these false religions to a point. And about the midway of the tribulation period, the beast is going to turn on these false religions, that he will have incorporated everything into basically one giant false religion. So when you drive down the street and you see that bumper sticker that says coexist, that's what that's pointing to. And they, will have they would have encompassed all of these things, kind of tied them up nicely into one, and then halfway through the tribulation period, the beast is gonna dump that because it's going to be replaced with something else. What's that something else that it's going to be replaced with? 
the beast is no longer going to tolerate people worshiping some form of God other than him. He is now the, you know, he is the object to be worshiped. And of course, the beast is an extension of who? Satan. And so here you have um, Satan's version, frankly, of you shall have no God before me. That's his version. And so chapter 17 outlines the destruction of those false religions. And now that brings us to chapter 18, and this is going to shift. Because whereas in chapter 17, we're talking about something that is an idea. We're talking about something that is a concept. Religion and worship, those are... um, Those are concepts. Now in chapter 18, we're going to be, he's going to focus in on Babylon the Great as a city. And so uh, we're going to find that seven times in chapter, well, six times in chapter 18, once at the very end of chapter 17, that Babylon is referred to as a city. And then also it's referred to as a dwelling place. It's referred to as a prison. And so these are places. And um, this place basically is going to be the seat of power for the beast. This is his ground zero. So this is his, um, his place of power. So let's go to chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. So what we're going to see in chapter 18 is four voices. And these voices are going to... um, they're going to speak of the beast. They're going to speak, not the beast, of, the, of Babylon the Great. They're going to speak of her destruction. Um, we're going to see that there's a voice of judgment that is coming on Babylon the Great. There's going to be a voice of separation where God calls his people to come out from this place. Then we're going to see a voice of sorrow. It's of, of wailing, of lament over the destruction, and then there's going to be a voice of joy. Because again, everything that Babylon represents is evil. That's the bottom line. This is the place that represents um, the persecution of those who are redeemed. This is the place because the blood of the martyrs and the blood of the saints and the blood of the prophets is in this city. And so for the unredeemed, This is going to be great judgment, great lamentation, great sorrow, great regret 
all of those. Whereas on the other hand, for the redeemed, this is going to be the answer to the question that was asked back in chapter 6. Remember that the martyr, you had those uh, who had been killed for their faith under the altar in heaven. Lord, how long? How long until you vindicate us? How long until you bring these things to an end? This is the answer to that question. And so after these things, again, John, uh, what is John's purpose here in this book? What is he doing? He's writing down. He's basically being a secretary. He is recording things that he sees, things that he hears. And again, one of the, one of the trademarks, frankly, of John in this book is he doesn't offer himself. He doesn't offer interpretation. He's not interpreting these things as he sees them and hears them. He is recording them. Are there explanations given in the text? Yes. And those are being provided to John for him to provide to his first century audience and ultimately to who? To you and me. And so after these things is is one of his ways of being able to separate what has gone on before from what is happening here. And so here's the separation. We had the judgment of Babylon the Great as the false religion in chapter 17. Now, after that, now we're going to move in to this new phase, this new uh, portion. And so after these things, I saw another angel. Now, this angel is different from other angels that we've seen in the book of Revelation, right? Nowhere else have we talked about it or have has this angel been um, one that illumined with his glory. Now that is new. So there are some who would say, well, this is Christ. And it, it, it most and, and why would that, why would one look? at this particular being and come to that conclusion. The illumination, right? The the glory that's coming off of of this particular angel. This is probably simply another angel because that's what it's actually called. It's another angel, angel, again, another allos, another of the same kind as the one before. And so again, this is another angel now coming down from heaven Uh, being so luminous. Does that bring anything to your mind? Something coming uh, from heaven and all of a sudden having great illumination, something being so bright to look upon? Think Old Testament. Not heaven. What happened to Moses when he was in the presence of God? Yeah, he had to cover his face so that other people could look at him. And so probably what this is more getting at is you have an angel who dwells in God's presence and he looks it. Now again, there's also the question as to just how light it is on the earth because remember, we had darkness 
as one of the um, as one of the bowls of judgment. And so, um, you, here we have another angel. He has great authority, and again, this idea of authority, exousia. This is power, but also the ability to wield that power. That's where you get the idea of authority. Cries out with a mighty voice. And what we're going to see here uh, in, in chapter 18 is whenever there is this statement, it's repeated. So not, it's not just that Babylon is fallen. No, it is fallen, fallen. People are going to, they're going to talk about woe, woe, as, as they see the results of this judgment on Babylon. And we'll get into why that may be here in a little bit. And so Babylon fallen, fallen. Now she has become, so this is something where this is now characteristic of her. Now again, what would you expect if this place is uh, the seat of power for the epitome of anti-God? Remember, the beast is the anti-Christ. So what would you expect his principal place of power to be like? Is it going to be the accumulation of good? Is it going to be the accumulation of things that are wise, of things that are clean? No, it's going to be the opposite. So you want to see demon central? Here it is. The idea here of every unclean spirit, the idea of every unclean and hateful bird. Why were so many birds unclean? They were carrion eaters. So basically, they're vultures. They pick on the dead. And again, when something was dead, if you touched in, under the law in the Old Testament, if you touched something that was dead, what happened to you? You became, you became ceremonially unclean. Now, what was the idea about being ceremonially unclean? You could not approach God. You could not approach the temple. You were precluded from worship because you were unclean. And so again, all of these things are congregating here. So uh, it's not in your notes. All right, so where is this Babylon? Might as well just tackle this issue right here. Where is this city? And that's a question, Nevada. Okay, so Larry's making the comment that uh, Saddam Hussein attempted to rebuild historical Babylon on the Euphrates River. Now, he did not get very far. In fact, my understanding is what, in my reading this week, I guess we built a military installation on the site of old Babylon uh, when we were uh, there back in the early 2000s. And so 
there are three, um, well, let me back up. The two primary interpretations as to where Babylon is, one is the Babylon, the historical Babylon on the Euphrates River in what is current day Iraq. That is one. The other that is commonly uh, held is that Babylon is uh, another term for Rome. And the place where that comes is from 1 Peter 5.13. In fact, so go ahead, keep your finger in Revelation. We're going to be right back. And flip over to 1 Peter 5. Peter's gone through. He's written his entire epistle. He's, he's right down here at the very end. 1 Peter 5.13, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. So this idea here, what is Peter referring to when it comes to Babylon? Now, with Peter's use of that term, there are three possibilities. So you still have Babylon on the Euphrates, you have Rome. And then the third one, as far as how Peter is concerned, there was a place called Babylon that was basically a Roman military installation on the River Nile in Egypt. And so that one, there's not a whole lot of folks that, that hold to, you know, that's, that's what Peter is referring to. Now, the Roman Catholics take that and they say, well, this is obviously a reference to Rome because Peter started the church in Rome. He's the first, you know, basically Peter becomes the first pope of the church and then everything extends down from there. Now, those who hold against that will say there is actually no direct biblical evidence that Peter was ever in Rome. And that is a true statement. Nowhere do you see that actually specified in Scripture. Now, there is another point that has to be made right alongside that. And that is, there is no direct biblical evidence that Peter was ever in biblical Babylon on the Euphrates. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament do you find anyone at any time referenced as going to Babylon. And so... What, what people end up going to is either extra-biblical sources or secondary um, people. So what's, what's one way that um, you can follow somebody or, or locate somebody? Hang on one second, Gunnar. Okay, there's GPS. You can, you can tag them and then follow them that way. How did they find Osama bin Laden? Pardon me? Someone ran him out. <laughs> Some, well, okay. If you know somebody, so for instance, if you wanted to find me, how could you do that? Okay, so Danny makes a point. On Sunday, it would be easy. Why? Because you know where I go on Sunday. The, another way that you can do that is you track someone who is closely associated with that person. That's how they found bin Laden. 
they tracked associates. So if you wanted to find me, you could follow Carolyn. Because ultimately, at some point, I'm going to be in the same place as she is. So, you, so you, some of you are looking at me like, what's the point? The point is here. So at the end of 1 Peter, who's with Peter? John Mark is with Peter. Now, has John Mark been in Rome? Yes, he has. How do you know that? Besides from 1 Peter 5.13, how would you know? Say that again, Vitaly. Paul was asking for him at the end of 2 Timothy. When he's writing to Timothy, bring John Mark with you. Paul also is the direct evidence for that Mark is in Rome. Because while he was in custody in Rome, he wrote some letters. So, for instance, if you go to Colossians 4.10, who's with Paul in Rome? John Mark. If you go to Philemon, which actually is cheating a little bit because Philemon and Colossians were actually carried by the same person when, the, when those letters were delivered, we find that John Mark also is in Rome. So we know that Mark's in Rome. And so if John, if Paul, if, <laughs> I can't keep these people straight. If Peter is saying, hey, John sends his greetings, then at least there is some secondary evidence that Peter could have been in Rome. Gunnar, you had a question. Okay, the question is, do we know where Peter was executed? Church tradition holds it that he was executed under Nero in Rome. That, and again, that's church tradition. Um, in fact, most of the apostles, uh, there is tradition that says how they were uh, martyred ultimately, but those actually end up coming from extra-biblical sources. And so, now, does extra-biblical mean that they are incorrect? No, it doesn't mean that they're incorrect. They just don't have the stamp of inerrancy on them. Does that make sense? So, um, now there is another... Uh, If it's Babylon on the Euphrates, then everything that we've been reading about has to be somewhere out in the distance. Why? Why couldn't this happen next week? You got to rebuild it. It takes time for some place to become the seat of power for the world. That takes time. You don't build that overnight. You don't build that, frankly, in a couple of months. That takes time to do. And so, I'm sorry? They are building a new city in, uh, out of uh, United Emirates, and they're calling it the end time city. <laughs> so Danny's comment is there's a city being built in the United Emirates that they're calling the end time city. Was there another... I missed that one. You, you got to tell me that one after. <laughs> so I would hold this loosely, um, and believe me, I spent a lot of time on it this week, 
as to, you know, are we talking about Babylon and the Euphrates, or are we talking about Rome? I would hold it loosely that it's a reference to Rome, but again, that's not a hill to die on, at least not in my book. Okay, so you have Babylon as the, again, the, the poster child for being anti-God. Now the nations, so she's, the, she's basically the hangout place for everything that's unclean and evil. Verse 3, for the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. She impacts everything, everything. So when it talks about the nations, who would that be referring to? Okay, Gentiles. The nations is going to be a reference. That's common people. That's you and me. You and me as common people, not you and me as redeemed. Okay? It's the people who populate the nations. You get into the leaders with references to the kings. So the king's orbit revolves around Babylon. The nations, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry of the nations, their world revolves around Babylon and the merchants of the earth. So the economic realm revolves around Babylon. So Babylon, again, is, is you know, ground zero for pretty much everything that's going on in the world. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Let's just stop there. So now we have another voice. Now this is not specifically saying there is another angel. How was the previous voice characterized? Yeah, so it's a mighty voice. It's, it's again, it's, and it's not mega. Mega we've seen often. You know, somebody calling out with a loud voice. This is a mighty voice. And so this is more character that is going on behind it. It is probable that this voice is the voice of God himself. Now, what would be the hint that it's referring to God himself? My people. Typically, you don't see that from an angel. And so here you have this mighty voice come out, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. So, th there's always been a tension, a, a tension, not A-T-T-A, comma, tension in life, isn't there? Because we are, we are, in the world, but we are not to be what? We're not to be of it. We're not to be characterized by it. We're not to get sucked in. You know, uh, Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, right? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the idea here is that we have, we're here uh, in the process of being here and in the process of, of, of walking and living and working here you end up having to get washed, right? You got to get your feet washed because your feet get dirty. 
That was the picture when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Why did he need to wash their feet? Yeah, because when you walk everywhere and you're walking on dirt roads, what happens to your feet? They get dirty. That's just, that, that's just a common consequence of that. And so here, you still have redeemed people in the midst of unredeemed. Now, this is fascinating because you can actually go back to Genesis and follow this forward. There was a time for judgment to fall on a particular geographic area. Right around the Dead Sea in the book of Genesis. Where where am I referring? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, their sin had reached to heaven. And so, what does God do? Does he just wipe out the cities? I see heads shaking. What did he do first? Okay. Keep your finger in Revelation, and let's go back to Genesis 19. Genesis 18, you've got Abraham, Abram at that point. Actually, is Abraham at that point. And he is negotiating with God when it comes to getting the righteous out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you have two angels come down. And what was the purpose of the angels? Did they just come in to execute judgment? What, what, what did they do first? Okay, they went into the city. Why? Rescue. Part of it's to rescue Lot. What's the other part? Are the reports true? They're verifying their target. They're verifying that, in fact, this place is what it has the reputation of being. So go down to verse 15. Lot has warned his family. Uh, When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters. For the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Now go down to verse 22. Hurry, escape there. This is again the angel speaking. For I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Now when you go to 2 Peter chapter 2, what are you going to find? You find Peter using Lot as an example that the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous. He knows how to watch out for them. He knows how to take care of them. And so here he goes in, he gets Lot, and he gets Lot out of the way. You will find this, again, the same idea in Isaiah 48.20, 
in Jeremiah 51.6 and 51.45. Those are both passages that are talking about the destruction of Babylon, and there is a warning in each one of them basically saying, get out of town. Escape now while you can. Otherwise, you're going to be caught up in the judgment that is coming on them. Frankly, it's the basis for uh, 2 Corinthians 6.17. Anybody know that one offhand? Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And so the idea here is that there is danger of contamination. There's danger of being polluted if you are hanging around in that kind of an environment. So again, there's, you have to be able to be among people without becoming like them, without getting sucked into the same types of things that they do. The whole, so the question is, isn't the whole world in that boat? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. But some places are more flagrant than others, right? And so that's, that's the point here. So number one, get out so that you don't get sucked into what she, you don't end up buying what she's selling, okay? Second, Judgment's coming. And it's not, you know, some guy standing out here on the corner with a sign saying the end is near. This is, no, it's here. It's about to fall. It's, it's interesting, the, the word that's used here, her sins, her iniquities have piled up as high as heaven. That, that word there that's used for piled up is the idea of it's sticky. It sticks together. How was the Tower of Babel built? Mud bricks held together with tar, bitumen, sticky. And so the idea here is she is, her sins are basically rebuilding what? The Tower of Babel. Sure. And so the idea here is that she's rebuilding it. You know, not as a physical tower in order to reach the heaven, but her sins are becoming the monument of her immorality, of her wickedness. And so, the, you know, God is bringing judgment. And so those who are in need to get out so that they don't get swept away with the same thing that's coming to sweep away everyone else. It's interesting to me. Uh, and in fact, this is, um, I can't remember if it's one of the songs that's being done this morning or not. What does God do with our sin? He forgets it. And actually, he forgets it is, is really not entirely accurate, is it? So what does God choose to do relative to our sin? He chooses not to remember. So he chooses not to remember our sin. 
But he doesn't forget the sin of the unredeemed. And in fact, he will in no way leave the guilty unpunished. That's Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And God chooses not to remember against us. Okay, so again, so what's the point? In fact, it's a point. I remember Brian uh, making a point uh, some time ago, and I don't remember what it was we were talking about, but God in essence saying, you know what? I chose not to remember that. I'm, our sin is, is separated as far from us as east is from the west. Those are covered. God doesn't remember those against us. And I appreciate the distinction. Have you seen a lesson in the sins that piled up as high as heaven for us to learn from that? There are a number of things where we could go with. What do you got in mind? Okay, so Alan is, is bringing out the point that as these are sticking together and they are accumulating, it seems that oftentimes there's a place where it finally hits a point and God says, all right, that's it, judgment is coming. Now, there's plenty of biblical evidence for that, sure, right? I mean, why did God bring a flood? Because the intention of man's heart was what? Only evil continually, Right? And so it came to a point where I'm, starting, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring judgment. God got there with the Israelites in the, in the desert, in the wilderness. There was a point where he said to Moses, listen, you, you get Aaron, you get Miriam, you guys go stand over here because I'm going to wipe them out and I'll start over again with you. I've had, that's God basically saying something that our parents at some point said to us when we were growing up, Right? Can you picture this? Because I can picture this with my mom and dad. I have had it up to here with you, right? Once again, what's the idea? It's just accumulating. Now, does God keep track of sin? Now, that should be an easy one. That's right. They're all written in his books. We're going to get to that. Soon. I find this helpful to a struggle that I have. I think probably a lot of people have. Why is this evil person getting away with this? Why doesn't God do something? Answer, it's not up to that point yet. Long-suffering patience is waiting to where it gets with his head. Then judgment will come. That's what God said through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Right, and so Alan's, Alan's point is that it can be helpful for us as the redeemed when we are looking at the wicked as to why doesn't God bring judgment on this person 
for what it is that they're doing. Simple, their sins haven't gotten to the point. They have not reached the fullness. There's another term that you see often in the Bible, in the fullness of time, right? So in the idea when this thing is, it's fully ripe, now it's ready to, to harvest. Look, the day is coming for judgment of the wicked. And it's coming soon. It's a lot sooner now than it has been in the past. That day is coming. And yeah, God does have, because again, uh, when you get to the great white throne of judgment, what are those people going to be judged out of? The books, plural. Everything that they've done is written in those books, and that's what they're going to be judged out of. And why are they going to be judged out of those books? Because their name is not in the book. You have a book, and then you got a bunch of others. So you've got the book of life. If your name's not in the book of life, then you end up going to these others, and then you're judged according to your deeds. Now, when it comes to Babylon, Babylon's judgment is going to be exactly proportional to her sin. Exactly. It's not going to be too much. It's not going to be too little. Verse 6. Pay her back even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. In the cup which she has mixed, mix twice as much for her. To the degree that she has glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow, and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. Now, she thinks she is top dog on the block. That's the idea of, I sit as a queen. I am the authority. I'm not a widow. The idea of being a widow is you're weak. As a widow, you would be weak because you are no longer under the protection of a husband. And so you are more susceptible to attack. And her, her comment is, that ain't me. I'm still... A number one. I am still, I, I, and I'm not going to see mourning. There's nothing going to touch me that's going to bring me to a point of regret. There's nothing that's going to come at me that's going to come me, that, that's going to cause me to look back on my choices and go, gee whiz, I should have done differently. That's her stance. The problem is, for her, that is arrogance. It's arrogance because, number one, it's not true. And number two, there's another who is stronger who has authority over her. Now, she doesn't acknowledge it. She doesn't recognize it. She doesn't bow to it. But that does not make it any less true. No less true whatsoever. And so, all of these things that she has done, now, it doesn't talk about it here, but it will talk about it at the end of the chapter, where one of the things that she is characterized by, she's characterized by the blood of the righteous. Those are the kinds of things she's dished out. 
So they're coming back. And it's coming back double. Now, if you go back and look at the law, often, uh, you, there was a law, there's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If, you, if, if, if two guys get in a fight and one puts out the other's eye, the other guy can't go over and say, well, I get to put out both of yours. So that, is, that was equal part for part. But many of the punishments in the Old Testament under the law were multiples. If you stole from somebody, did you just give it back what you stole? No. You gave back more. And so the idea here is that she has, her sins have been piling up, and you know, for, it's like a two-for-one. It's like a sale. Yeah, buy one, you get one free. And that's coming here when it comes for her judgment. So again, this idea, I will live as a queen, and I'm not a widow, and I'll never see mourning. That's fantasy land for her. That's, that's a world that she's created. It has no, no actual resemblance in reality. Questions up till now. Now, we come to three groups who are going to look at this calamity that comes to this city. And these three groups, there's going to be the kings of the earth, there's the merchants of the earth, and then there's the transportation gurus. That's going to be the sailors and the shipmasters. Because again, many of these rich things that are coming to Babylon, many of these things that are just opulent, come from the far reaches of the earth. And they've got to be able to get to Babylon somehow. And a lot of that stuff doesn't go over land. And so this is the FedEx version of the time here for Babylon. So verse 9, And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her will weep and lament. And the idea here, weep and lament, this is wailing. So when you, uh, when you see... Uh, renditions of a funeral in the Middle East. Are those quiet affairs? No. You got people who, in fact, you could hire a professional whaler to come to express grief over the death of, of an individual. And so the idea here, this idea of, of weeping is loud. They are, this is intense, um, wailing and mourning. And they're going to do that <coughs> over her, excuse me, over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance. Now, this is going to be a characteristic of all three of these groups. All three of these groups are accustomed to being in very close proximity to, being, you know, uh, being very tight with. Not now. Not now. Those who have been very close with, now they're standing over on the next block because they don't want to get sucked into what just happened here. So, in fact, um, it's interesting when you watch um, a video of a real fire and a crowd at a real fire, 
you can tell how bad the fire is by how close or how far away everyone else stands. I'm thinking of a, of a fire that happened at a, at a soccer stadium and you know the, the stands catch on fire and people are, in the beginning, they're very close. Well, they started backing off when people started catching on fire from radiant heat. And so, um, you know, from here to the, back, to the back row, you know, you get a fire that's big enough, that's not far enough. And I can remember, uh, it's on video. You can get it on YouTube. You know, here's some poor guy who's walking away, trying to walk away from this heat, and he's smoking. And I'm not talking about a cigarette. His clothes are smoking. His hair is getting ready to catch on fire. And so, again, the idea here is they're at a distance because what's happening over here is bad news. Her judgment has come, and it's being complete. It is being thorough, and they are watching from a distance. And so, again, it's true for the kings. It's true for the merchants. It's true for her transportation people. And they're saying, woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. So, again, the, the time of tribulation is how long? The great tribulation. Well, okay, I just kind of... The tribulation period is how long? Seven years. The great tribulation is how long? Three and a half years. So again, 42 months, 1260 days, you got some time. This judgment, one day. And in fact, some of them even say one hour. It took years to build. It's not going to take long to take down. And so you have the kings of the earth. Verse 11, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. She's been their number one customer. And now, no more. And it goes into this long list. And so she doesn't wear fake costume jewelry. Oh, no, no, no. Hers is the real stuff. She doesn't wear something off the rack at an outlet store. No, no. She, you know, she doesn't shop at Kmart. She shops at wherever the high, high, high end places are. I don't even know where the high, high, high end places are. I don't shop there, obviously. Everything that she does is it just reeks opulence. She doesn't go down to Home Depot and pick up some two-by-fours for a building project. No, 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 no. She's got the exotic woods. She, so again, everything, there's nothing off the shelf. Everything is special. Nothing is generic. This is all custom order. Her food, you know, when you look at the, at the perfumes and the spices, again, it's, it's the high-end stuff. Everything about her is just top dollar. Everything is, is just 
again, for the purpose of, of, of demonstrating opulence. And so when you look at this long list, cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine lemon and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots. I mean, everything just, you know, She's got the top of everything. And what ends that list? And slaves in human lives. So what she has and what she wants is more important than the consequences to people. She doesn't care how many people she has to climb over to get what she wants. And in fact, those who stand in her way don't stand in her way for very long. If she can't buy them, she kills them. And that's why when you get down to uh, in verse 24, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. So again, it's all about her and, and she doesn't care who she's got to do away with in order to get it. Verse 14, the fruit you long for is gone from you, and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and, linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. In fact, it's, it's not just it's been she's lost it, it's actually those items have been lost as well. So it's not somebody's going to be able to come in and scavenge any of it. It's gone. So... Why are they upset? Why are the merchants of the earth weeping and wailing? Yeah, they got rich off of her. And all of a sudden, that cash cow just went to slaughter. And so they are at loss because they've been making money off of her and off of her opulence. And then, and every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor, and as many as make their living by the sea, stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out and weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour, she's been laid waste. And so again, you can see how the... the the judgment that God is bringing on her has got global implications. It's not, again, all of the things, the people who have had business dealings with her and have gotten rich off of her, all of a sudden, all of that's gone. Now, the shipmaster's already had another problem anyway, right? At this point? How many ships are sailing on the sea? Yeah, I doubt any since, you know, yeah, you don't have water in the oceans anymore. It's all blood like from a dead guy. And so everything here, and again, everything, 
all of these things that have enabled people to be able to, God, why do I need you? I got wealth. I got all this other stuff. Why do I need to even acknowledge you? All of that is gone, going away, throwing dust on their heads. That, that, was a, that was an old way of, in fact, it's not old. There's still places in the world where this is practiced. The idea of, you know, throwing dust on, as a sign of grief and a sign of mourning. And so basically, who is sad that Babylon has been judged? If you were going to look, if you were going to characterize, find the common link between the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth and the transportation guys of the earth and their relationship with Babylon the Great, what would be kind of the overarching umbrella that covers all of them? What characteristic do they share? I'm sorry? Yeah, they're unredeemed. They're sad because her judgment has brought me grief. It's impacting me. Not necessarily, I really don't care about those in the city who just got fried. I'm not really concerned about that. Again, why am I upset? It just impacted me. It just impacted my bottom line. Who's rejoicing? Saints. Oh, the saints? They're looking and they're saying, this is one of those Kodak moments in history. Because God is finally bringing judgment. These people have persecuted us. This regime has persecuted. It has martyred. It has hunted down. They have done all of those things in, in, again, they hate God, and so they also hate anybody who would, ally, who would ally themselves with God. I can't get to God, but I can get to his kids. And so you have the fourth voice, and that is the command. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And so here you have the voice of joy. Vindication is finally here. Verse 21. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone. Now, millstones came in various sizes and shapes. So if you have a woman uh, in, in this time, how would somebody make wheat? How would you make bread? Well, yeah, you got to get the wheat or whatever it is that you're going to make the flour out of, and you got to grind it. Now, my wife has got this nice grinder mill, and she can put it in there, and the worst thing it does in the house is it makes some noise for a little bit until all of a sudden, you know, she puts in this stuff and out comes flour. I love this thing, especially since I don't have to use it. I don't have to work it. 
I don't have to make the bread either. Man, this, it's good being the husband in that way. So you would have the small mill that would be the handheld model. Now, when you get into large commercial mills, you would have these huge, and it would basically be two stones against each other, and you would get an ox or a horse or a donkey, and you would tie them up to, the, to this uh, piece of wood, this beam, and as the horse goes around, it pulls this mill around, and so you get the larger commercial version. Now, how easy is it going to be to pick up the handheld model? That's relatively easy, right? You pick it up and you move it over. How easy is it to pick up the commercial model? If you got to drag it around with an ox in order to move it, you're not picking it up, right? But that's the kind of millstone this angel's picking up. So this angel comes in here and he's picking up the commercial model and he takes it and for, and for, a, for an object lesson, he takes it over and he dumps it in the ocean, into the sea. Now, does this bring anything to your mind when you see a millstone being thrown into the sea? I seem to remember somebody talking about that at some point. Yeah, it would be better for them to have a millstone, a heavy millstone, tied around their neck and thrown into the ocean, right? Matthew 18, 6. And so the idea here is, it's an object lesson. Now, big, heavy stone. What's the chances that's going to float? None, right? Those don't float. In fact, how long does it take for them to go down to the bottom? It's free fall, right? And they're going to keep dropping until they hit bottom. And what's the chances of them coming back up? So again, the idea of this is this is judgment. It is immediate. It is permanent. And there's no coming back from it. And it's violent. There's, it's, it's un, again, it's, it's something that's unrestrained. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And now he's going to put on, now here's, the, here's just kind of the day-to-day -day life type stuff. The sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. There's no entertainment. There's no levity. There's no culture. All of that is gone. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. You don't have any niceties and you don't have any trades. All of that is gone. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. You don't have any food production. So in other words, your economy is over. None of these things happen in you. The light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. You don't have basic utilities. You have nothing. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. You don't have the social constructs. So as far as you being a city, that is over. There is no more city. For your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived 
by your sorcery. Now, there's a basic point when it comes to deception. And this is something that we would be wise to pay mind to. Why is deceit practiced? Who benefits from deceit? The deceiver is the one who benefits from deceit. So when Satan is the great deceiver, is he doing it for the benefit of those who he's deceiving? No. It's about him and hoodwinking anybody and everybody that he can. Which is what's happened here. You've had masses deceived. Why? So they can get their sheep and so that they can get fleeced for someone else's benefit. How do you tell the difference between a good shepherd and a bad shepherd? What does a good shepherd do for the sheep? Yeah, Jesus, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What's the bad sheep? What's the bad shepherd do? He fleeces them. You got a nice fat sheep? Good. That's dinner. And so again, this, this whole thing has been built on deceit. And that always goes for the benefit of the deceiver. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. So those things that she has brought on the heads of others have now landed squarely on her. Questions? So if God has brought judgment on false religion and now God has brought judgment on the the seat of power for the primary one who opposes him. What do you think is next? What has all this been leading to? Jesus is fixing to come back. This is the valleys being filled. This is the high places being graded down. This is, being, this is all the preparation work for the arrival of the king. He's at the door. Let's pray. Father, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. And there is a wrath to come. And here we've been studying now over these last weeks the the outpouring of that wrath on people who deserve it. They have refused to bow their knee to you. They have continued to be stiff-necked and rebellious. They've had warning after warning after warning, which they 
continually disregard. They've had every opportunity, and yet they're steadfast in their sin. And Lord, that would be us. That would have been us. Had you not rescued us and had compassion on us and, 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 and drawn us out of the fire, as in Jude. And we're grateful that, that you have had, you have displayed mercy and compassion. Father, help us to be diligent in warning others of the wrath that is to come. That they too could be delivered. That they too would be able to turn from death to life. Thank you that the day is coming where you are going to judge evil once and for all. And all of these things are going to be set aside. You're going to make all things new. And then there's going to be an eternity where there is no even no more time. All things will be right. We will be able to see you face to face. We're going to be able to worship you as you deserve. Thank you that you're bringing all these things to be. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.